Hey everyone, you're listening to Learning in the Dark. Hey everyone, you're listening to Learning in the Dark. Hey everyone, you're listening to Learning in the Dark. Hey everyone, you're listening to Learning in the Dark. Hey everyone, you're listening to Learning in the Dark. Hey everyone, you're listening to Learning in the Dark. Hey everyone, you're listening to Hi, my name's Rebecca. And my name is James. And you're listening to Learning in the Dark. Hello, radiology residents, and welcome back to Learning in the Dark podcast aimed at making those dark on-call nights just a little brighter. My name's Rebecca. And my name's James, and we're your co-hosts. So as you know, this podcast targets those high-yield on-call pathologies that will prepare you for call, taking cases, and the boards. So here's the plan. We're going to start with James guiding us through his approach to a common case like he would in rounds, formatting through the classic four Ds of radiology. Detect, Describe, Differential, and Decision. The cases are available on our website, learninginthedark.com. Please follow along or just listen in as we embark on this wild radiology ride. Oh, Rebecca, have we got a good topic today or what? What's the topic? I'm quite excited. It's the small bowel obstruction. Here we go. All right, James, do you mind telling us your approach to this case? Yeah, so whenever I have a a case where a small bowel is uh, suspected, the first thing I do is I take my mouse, my cursor, and I scroll through the study as quickly as I can because I'm looking for the hallmark of the small bowel obstruction, which is dilation. And if I see that there's small bowel dilation, then the next thing I do is I, I try and find why there's dilation. And so we'll talk a bit later about the common causes of what causes an obstruction. I think you've got a pretty good list about that, Rebecca. But uh, basically what I do is I I try and find what's called the transition point. And that's the area where you see the upstream small bowel that's dilated and the downstream small bowel that's collapsed. And and one really good area um, to look for is an area of fecalized small bowel. So you see that sort of bubbly gas within small bowel, which it shouldn't be. And that's often an indicator of where the transition point is. And then I try and determine why it's happening. Is it a mass? Is it because of bowel wall thickening or or an underlying inflammatory bowel disease? Or is it most simply uh, an adhesion? And so once I go through that pattern of having detected a small bowel obstruction, find out where the transition point is and why, then the next thing I go into is the complications of a small bowel obstruction. Things you can see, and Rebecca, I think you're going to chat a bit more about these later, things like ischemia and perforation and And so I look for features that would suggest those and then sort of summarize it at the end um, with a general statement of there being a small bowel obstruction, what the small bowel obstruction is caused by, and what are the complications of the small bowel obstruction. Awesome. So when taking this case, do you go straight to the small bowel or how would you look at the CT? Yeah, that's kind of what I do. I mean, typically um, the the history of a a small bowel obstruction is, is pretty characteristic you know, that colicky abdominal pain, distension, nausea, vomiting, inability to pass gas. So often small bowel obstruction is clinically suspected. So if I have that, I kind of just go right for the money for the dilated bowel. All right. Well, then let's talk about our learning objectives for this week. Learning objectives. Detect. 
One, what are the classic signs and symptoms of a bowel obstruction? Two, what are the top three causes of a small bowel obstruction? Three, describe the anatomy of the small bowel. All right, so detect, here's our detect section. And once again, you can't detect something without understanding what it is. Uh, So the classic clinical presentation of a small bowel obstruction, which is basically a clogged tube, uh, is this colicky abdominal pain. You can sometimes get distension, nausea, vomiting, constipation, and the inability to pass gas. That's one of those classic things that you have to ask in the emergency department. When was the last time you passed gas? Um, In terms of signs, so things that you'd look for on physical exam, you're looking for those high-pitched tinkling or absent bowel sounds. Although, to be honest, those are fairly nonspecific and often uh, challenging to depict when listening to the abdomen. Uh, So the pathophysiology of a small bowel obstruction, I think, Rebecca, you hit it on the head when you said it was a clogged tube. So many problems in radiology are problems with stuff blocking a tube, and small bowel obstruction is no different. And so what you have is an obstruction, and then you have a bowel trying to propel you know, luminal contents beyond the obstruction. And so what happens is it ends up dilating upstream from that. And so, you know, as the, as the pressure builds uh, inside the small bowel lumen, you can end up with uh, decreased flow, um, blood flow to the um, bowel wall itself, which can lead to uh, ischemia, hemorrhage, rupture, necrosis, perforation. There's a huge spectrum of things that can happen with a small bowel obstruction. Thankfully, most of the time we don't see these and these, this resolves spontaneously. But uh, those are all things to think about in the pathophysiology of a small bowel obstruction. Yikes. Who knew a clogged tube could cause so many problems? <laughs> all right, that leads us into our causes. So the framework that I like to think about uh, when looking at a case or just looking at a clinical question of a small bowel obstruction are things that can block the tube intrinsically, things that can block the tube extrinsically, or things that can block the tube intraluminally. So the top three causes are adhesions, hernias, and malignancies. But when breaking it down into that framework, intrinsically, you can get vascular problems like ischemia or radiation enteropathy, uh, inflammatory things like IBD, uh, such as Crohn's disease, uh, neoplastic causes, uh, intussusception, or hematomas from trauma or anticoagulants. In terms of extrinsic causes, you can get hernias, adhesions, endometriosis actually, and hematomas as well. In terms of intraluminal, you get gallstones, foreign bodies, or bazores. And bazores was one of these terms that was thrown around in medical school that you kind of smile and nod, but it's actually this (laughs) tightly packed collection of partially or undigested material. So you can actually get hairs and see weird stringy things. There's, uh, they're quite, quite interesting uh, imaging pictures that I was looking up online actually. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So those top three of adhesions, hernias, and malignancies, extremely important in adults. I remember when I was going through general surgery, the surgeon always saying, you know, the top causes of small bowel obstruction in adults is adhesions, adhesions, and adhesions. Um, but yeah, of course, there's a few other thoughts. And, and then for pediatrics, it's a bit different as well, right? I mean, as you mentioned, Rebecca, common things to consider in pediatrics, hernias and intussusceptions, and then as well, don't ever forget the congenital and, um, and mid-gut malrotations and associated volvulus as well, especially uh, early, in, early in life. No kidding. That's super important to remember. Shout out to our pediatric colleagues. 
All right. So once again, the anatomy in radiology is our best friend. So it is important to actually go back to that pathology that we learned in medical school in terms of the small bowel wall layers, because it can actually help us understand the enhancement patterns on CT. So broken down, you've got the going from inside to outside, you've got the mucosa, the submucosa, the muscularis, and the serosa. And then breaking down the actual small intestine, largely, um, you've got the duodenum, the jejunum, and the ileum. So the duodenum is the proximal part of the small bowel, uh, about 20 to 25 centimeters in length. And it's actually, its blood supply are branches from the gastroduodenal artery off the celiac axis, as well as the inferior pancreaticoduodenal artery off the uh, superior mesenteric artery. The venous drainage is into the pancreaticoduodenal veins to the mes- uh, superior mesenteric vein, and then the portal venous system. In terms of the jejunum, you've got about 2.5 meters in length, and its arterial blood supply is usually just branches from the SMA, so the superior mesenteric artery. And then the ileum is the most distal three meters, and its arterial blood supply is the superior mesenteric artery. Yeah, a nice reminder that for most of the small bowel, the blood supply is the SMA, and the uh, venous return is through the SMV to the portal vein. Learning objectives. Describe. One, what are the appropriate imaging modalities to order? Two, what are the hallmark radiographic features of a small bowel obstruction? Three, what questions should you ask yourself when looking at a CT to assess for small bowel obstruction? And four, what are the key CT features of a small bowel obstruction? Yeah, so small bowel obstructions, again, like we mentioned so many times, this is a blocked tube. So you've got dilation upstream and often decompression downstream of whatever's obstructing the bowel. And, you know, various classification schemes have been put out, whether, you know, the bowel obstruction is complete, incomplete, slash partial, uh, or closed loop. Those are the three big categories that I think about. Sometimes it can be really hard differentiating a, a complete or high-grade small bowel obstruction from a partial small bowel obstruction. I find if I I just try to keep things broad and say, you know, this is a small bowel obstruction um, and uh, and sort of let the clinicians decide clinically based on how the patient's doing, whether or not it's, you know, a complete or partial. Closed loop is an incredibly important one to detect radiographically. This is a bowel that is obstructed in two places that are anatomically very close to each other. So you get this, you can imagine this sort of like c-shaped loop of bowel or this uh, segment of bowel that kind of radiates and comes into a, a defined point uh, and this is at exceedingly high risk for ischemia and perforation because um, there's nowhere for the luminal contents to back up into yeah that makes sense whereas if you have a single transition point everything can back up upstream towards the stomach and then you know you can put an ng tube and decompress it that way but if say you've got a hernia sac and you've got two points and you've just got a a segment of bowel that keeps growing and growing and the pressure keeps getting greater and greater, that's at high risk for um, for complications. Ouch. All right, so into the imaging workup. So you've got initially somebody comes into the eMERGE or wherever they're presenting with this history and physical exam and laboratory findings that are associated and with a suspected small bowel obstruction. And 
Prior to CT, the gold standard was to go with abdominal radiographs, and those are still used sometimes in the hospital. Um, so if that, that can be ordered. Um, but the gold standard imaging modality would be the CT with, the, uh, with or without IV contrast. Yeah, and, th- and that seems to be the, the practice at most of our institutions um, that we cover as, as residents, as, as you know, Rebecca. That these surgeons, when they find out about a small bowel obstruction, either it's on an x-ray or, or clinically, um, they want to know, A, why it's happening, and B, are there any complications? And that's really how we add value. So just to touch on the abdominal x-rays uh, ordered to follow patients with small bowel obstruction or as just the uh, primary imaging modality, um, You've got the both or two views. So dependent, meaning the stuff that sinks when you're supine or prone, and then the non-dependent. James, can you tell us a bit about what we should be looking for? Yeah. So for on the uh, on the supine or the the X-rays when the patient's lying down, this is really your one to detect dilated small bowel loops. And so the cutoff that we use for radiography is typically about three centimeters. Uh, although this obviously your sensitivity changes based on your your bowel cutoff sign. There's some other signs that you can see in addition to dilation. A gasless abdomen uh, is one where if you see that, you can't exclude a small bowel obstruction, but it's kind of hard to call it prospectively. Uh, A dilated stomach is a sort of indirect sign or maybe a complication of a small bowel obstruction that you can comment on because, um, at least anecdotally, these might be the patients that might receive the most benefit from nasogastric decompression. and then as for the, the upright views, the main things that we're looking for on these are, are air fluid levels, uh, multiple air fluid levels. Um, I mean, some people will talk about different lengths or, or different heights of the air fluid levels, but I think generally most of us um, sort of know that when we see a combination of air fluid levels uh, and dilated small bowel, that's suspicious for small bowel obstruction or postoperative ileus, depending on the context. Yeah, I actually had a really great uh, mentor that mentioned that an ileus is uh, like associated with this generalized distension because it's not necessarily an increase in pressure because of a blocked tube. It's just a, a stagnant tube, I guess. Yeah, the ileus being seen after surgery, I think of it as a bowel that's a bit stunned. Um, so yeah, if you see it after surgery, uh, it's very common or metabolic causes when patients have um, deranged um, metabolites, say, for example, in the ICU. Uh, or they've got renal or liver failure, you can also see ileus in that sense. And yeah, in that case, the the large bowel is often a bit stunned as well. So you see a dilation of large bowel. And the, and the key about the ileus is you don't have that defined transition point like you do uh, with a small bowel obstruction. Now, it can be impossible to distinguish the two on x-ray, which is why context is super important. So I tend to I tend to favor ileus if it's a post-operative patient or if it's a patient that... Uh, that is uh, maybe critically ill or for, with another cause and has metabolic derangements because of that. Cool. Okay. Well, before we jump into our CT, which I'm always excited about, uh, I do want to touch a bit about ultrasound. So this is actually a cool kind of dynamic way of uh, assessing a small bowel obstruction uh, that doesn't involve any radiation. So things that you could look for would be dilation of the proximal bowel segment, like like you mentioned, so greater than three centimeters, the length of the dilated segment uh, being greater than 10 centimeters. Um, You can actually get increased peristaltic activity within the dilated segment, trying to just, you know, push and open up the block tube. Um, And then you actually need to look for signs of infarction or like ischemia. So small bowel wall thickening greater than three millimeters. 
uh, free fluid between the dilated segments, and then actually an aperistaltic nature of the dilated segments. So no moving is not a good thing. Um, these are not considered gold standard, so CT is considered the gold standard imaging by ACR guidelines, uh, but they can be helpful, especially in our pediatric population, to look at things like uh, James mentioned, so things like intussusception or volvulus and other causes of the small bowel obstruction. Yeah, and the other reason why I really like ultrasound, especially in pediatrics, is uh, although you might not necessarily see the volvulus itself, is you can get an indication that somebody might have malrotation, for example, by looking at the relationship of the SMV and the SMA. And if the orientation of those is reversed, then it's highly likely that that patient has a mid-gut malrotation. And, and if they're presenting acutely, probably volvulus as well. Cool. So what's the right way? What's the correct orientation? Oh, uh, the SMA lies to the left of the SMV. So I think of the SMV draining to the liver. So the SMV typically is on the right side and the SMA is on the left. So if you see that flipped around, um, then that's uh, that's one of the features of mid-gut malrotation. Although I should say that not every patient with mid-gut malrotation has a reversed SMA-SMV. When you see it, it's suggestive of rotation. Gotcha. So suggestive, not diagnostic. I feel like that's a common thing. <laughs> yes. There's always the, the weird zebras. All right. So on to our CT. So commonly, is there contrast or no contrast? Uh, if the if the patient can receive IV contrast, we do these studies with IV contrast for the simple reason that it outlines um, the bowel wall so much nicer and you can see earlier complications of ischemia with, uh, with IV contrast. Oral contrast is sort of the uh, personal preference or it's sort of at the discretion of the radiologist and the clinical team. I find that I don't ever find it helpful except in very specific circumstances like if it's a, a post-operative patient and the surgeon wants to know if there's a leak at an anastomosis um, which can be the cause of uh, basically a, an obstruction or ileus um, i find it helpful in that case if somebody is maybe concerned about a partial small bowel obstruction i might use it in that case but generally if they've got dilation and a transition point, that's a small bowel obstruction. And as you know, oral contrast is not kind to patients. And it tastes really bad. Yeah, they're nauseous and vomiting. And um, it, it's I think of it as a bit, a bit of an insult to injury for many of these patients. Gotcha. So if we don't have to use it, we don't have, we shouldn't. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's generally my approach. Cool. Okay, James, on to our CT findings. So looking things up, I think that the main questions that you need to ask yourself are basically the main questions that we learn in kindergarten. Who, what, where, when, why, how? So one, is there a bowel obstruction? Two, where is it? Three, what caused it? Four, are there complications? And five, how are we going to treat it? Yeah, so the first, um, as you mentioned, is there a bowel obstruction? So that's the first thing that I'm looking for when I look at CTs of the abdomen for obstruction is, is the small bowel dilated? And there's various numbers that people use for this, but generally somewhere between two and a half to three centimeters um, is in keeping with obstruction. 
Um, and then you want to be looking for that transition point, which is really going to be the distinguishing feature between an ileus and an obstruction. Air fluid levels are also very helpful when they're present, especially if a long segment of the bowel is dilated. And then you may or may not see the colon distally um, be decompressed. Very cool. Um, we talked a bit earlier about fecalization of the small bowel. This to me is, um, is again, the... Uh, Maybe the canary in the coal mine or the the way that i try and first look for a small bell uh obstruction is transition point is to find that sort of bubbly gas-like appearance of stool and small bell because uh often the transition point is just beyond that area of fecalized small bell when it's present it's really helpful if it's absent it's uh it just means you have to keep looking so two where is the obstruction and find the transition point and i, and I think i talked about this a bit earlier but I kind of look for the busiest portion of the uh, of the scan where there's that fecalized small bowel. There might be fluid between loops of small bowel. It's the most typically the most dilated portion of bowel. And the way that I break the small bowel up is it's really challenging to scroll through five five ish meters of small bowel and to try and do it continuously. No um, kidding. So the way that I break <laughs> yeah the way that I break the small bowel up is to look at it in quadrants and sort of assess it in uh, in a few passes, uh, looking for the the signs that might lead me towards the transition point awesome. um so three how severe is the small bowel obstruction and some people have published criteria about what constitutes a high-grade obstruction for me it's bowel that's very dilated and it's a long segment of bowel that's involved and in terms of partial or incomplete small bowel obstruction um, this is where an oral contrast can be helpful if you can see oral contrast trickling beyond the transition point that might give you a suggestion that the small bowel obstruction is partial or incomplete Great. Rebecca, do you want to talk about the causes? Yeah, definitely. So we've got the top three being the adhesions, the hernias, and the malignancies in adults, which we're going to focus on for the podcast today. Uh, so in terms of adhesions, they're actually this fibrous tissue that you get from infl inflammation, often related to uh, an operation. So open, whether that be open or laparoscopic in the past, um, and that leads to an abrupt obstruction. And so you get this tapering uh, transition point, but that's not the actual adhesion is not often visible on CT. And so it's inferred when you rule out all the other causes of uh, an obstruction or things that would block the tube. Um, in terms of hernias, we've got things that are external or internal hernias. So external would be like these dilated bowel going into the hernia sac and then decompressed bowel exiting the hernia site. And the locations that are most commonly uh, are in the abdominal wall and then the inguinal. So we've got the, uh, or ephemeral, I suppose, inguinal being uh, the most common and then femoral being more common in females than males, but still that's one of the classic ones where you're at, it's actually, the more common one is in females is actually within the inguinal region still. What about hernias, James? What do you think? Yeah, so internal hernias are, are really tricky and there's a whole classification system that's been described. Basically for this, I... I tend to look them up every time. <laughs> um, <laughs> there are specific considerations, like if you see that somebody has a, has had a previous rue and why, um, you know, you should read the operative report or, or try and figure out how the rue was created because there can be um, transmesenteric hernias. Political correlation. But <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but basically, many of the internal hernias will present with uh, as closed loop obstructions. So if you see two transition points in close proximity to each other, I try and figure out. Uh, if the internal hernia is from a volvulus, sorry, if the closed loop obstruction is from a volvulus internal hernia or possibly an adhesive band. 
Gotcha. And then I guess it's also important to rule out our third most common cause being malignancy, and that can either be primary or metastatic. Um, the problem with metastatic disease is that there's often multiple metastases that are involved, which means that it uh, is poses a bit more of a challenging and uh, surgical uh, discussion because it may or may not be able to be treated surgically. All right, James, can you tell us about the complications? These things are nasty. Yeah, so so we care about small bowel obstructions because they're at risk for for complications. And so yeah. um, in terms of the complications of closed loop obstructions, I think I spoke about this a bit earlier, um, when you have uh, basically two transition points in close proximity, um, you know, you can imagine that this, this bowel is continuing to secrete um, fluid into its lumen, it becomes progressively dilated and uh, congested and the venous return um, slows and, and the bowel segment is at high risk for ischemia. And so, um, so closed loop obstructions are at high risk for complications. Yeah. I also want to just touch on the fact that closed loop obstruction does not necessarily mean that there's a volvulus. It can predispose you to the twisting of the small bowel, but it doesn't necessarily diagnose a volvulus right away when you see that closed loop. Yeah, exactly. It can be from an internal hernia. It can be from even an adhesive band, uh, volvulus, um, possibly even malignancy. A closed loop obstruction is a very general category. Yeah. So the classic CT findings are this U or C shaped. Is that correct? And then this double beak sign. Uh, yeah, exactly. The double beak sign referring to sort of the two transition points as they sort of converge at, at a single point. Very, very um, cool. The thing. The thing that I look for uh, is is the edema in the mesentery. So the small bowel is sitting sort of at, on a mesentery. And so if you like have a, beautiful a transition. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So if you've got a transition point, you're going to see edema within the mesentery that is, um, I hate this word, but subtended by the colon or in the subtending mesentery. So you see very localized mesenteric edema that kind of fans out and is wedge-shaped. And if I see that, then that's my suspicion that that highly raises my suspicion that there's a closed loop small bowel obstruction. Gotcha. All right. So on to things like ischemia. So I know you touched on this before, but that is clinically very significant because it warrants immediate surgical referral um, as there's a high rate of mortality, actually as high as 25%, which is huge, um, with a quite a variable clinical presentation. So you can't really hang your hat on one thing being like, yes, this is an ischemic small bowel, rush them to the OR uh, without our CT findings. Um, so things like bowel wall thickening greater than three millimeters, and this is because of edema and hemorrhage or both, um, and can often be circumferential and actually can be up to eight millimeters in size. Have you seen this, James? Uh, I've definitely seen very thick bowel, ischemic bowel on a, on a CT after a, after a small bowel obstruction, Yeah, yeah. So as you mentioned to the mesenteric edema, you can get fluid in the mesentery or the peritoneal cavity um, because of the, uh, uh, the whatever the cause of the ischemia, you can actually get the occlusion of the mesenteric vessels and see that as well uh, when IV contrast is given in your study protocol. Um, okay, so other things for ischemia that you'd be looking for would be this pneumatosis or uh, gas, I guess, in the portal or mesenteric veins, so gas where it is not supposed to be. Yeah, with gas where it's not supposed to be often being a very late finding in ischemia. On CT, I think we underestimate uh, or it's not sensitive to early signs of ischemia. So I suspect um, there's ischemia going on actually quite a bit more often than, than we think there is. Yeah, poor people. That must be 
very painful. All right, so other complications being this perforation. So you get this distension, poor venous return, and the compromised blood supply as the pressure from the obstruction approaches the systolic pressure. And as you get this more and more decreased blood supply from the duct compression due to the distension, um, or you can sometimes get the twisting of the mesentery and this volvulus picture. Regardless, it leads to mucosal damage, necrosis, and ischemia, which can also result in perforation. Is that true, James? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the main takeaway for all these obstructions is that you get increased pressure within the lumen of dilated small bowel, you then get ischemia, and then perforations, the late complication of ischemia. Yes, definitely. And uh, intraoperatively, you can correlate because there's pus and fluid in the abdomen as the bowel actually has a hole in it. Yeah, fe feculent material in the bowel. Sorry, in the uh, peritoneal cavity. Oh, so lovely. Learning objectives. Differential. What other things should we be considering? Basically, the differential is kind of what we mentioned in the causes. You can break it down into intrinsic, extrinsic, and then intraluminal things. So once again, the intrinsic causes being the vascular, first of all, like radiation enteropathy or ischemia, as we touched on. Uh, so radiation, you can actually get these irregular fold thickenings often located in the pelvic small bowel, really dependent on where the radiation occurred. Um, and so clinical um, past history of like cancer or irradiation is important in those circumstances. Um, James, what about inflammatory causes intrinsically? Yeah, inflammatory, the big ones are going to be um, inflammatory bowel disease, typically Crohn's disease. And then some, depending on your, again, your demographics, TB is kind of up there as well with uh, distal ileal involvement. Um, Crohn's, many times these patients will have a known history of Crohn's disease. Sometimes you can suggest it if you see terminal ileal involvement, skip lesions, um, this sort of mesenteric or um, bowel wall fatty uh, metaplasia uh, as being sort of described with Crohn's disease, although you can often see it in people without Crohn's disease. And then neoplasms uh, in terms of causing, uh, causing obstruction itself. So neoplasms, primary GI neoplasms like um, GIST or, or lymphoma, although lymphoma classically um, dilates bowel itself, and then metastases um, to either the uh, bowel itself or the surrounding peritoneum, um, like, a, like a G, a GI or gyne um, malignancies. Yeah, that's really tough. It'd be a tough conversation to have with patients too, because it's quite painful, and then you've also got metastatic disease. Um, other things intrinsically, you can actually get congenital problems, things like cystic fibrosis, um, and you can get this thing called distal intestinal obstruction syndrome, which actually can be treated with high osmolar contrast, which I thought was really interesting. It actually draws the uh, the fluid intraluminally and can like block or um, uh, improve the obstruction. So I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, at our center, surgeons are, are often using um, gastrographin both for uh, for following small bowel obstructions and as treatment, the so-called gastrographin challenge, where they give them a Big long patients a big long drink of gastrographin and then uh, image them at typically four to eight hours and then at 24 hours and see if the uh, contrast passes beyond the obstruction point so it can be both diagnostic as to telling you whether obstruction is partial or has been relieved 
uh, as well as they think it can actually treat the uh, underlying adhesive obstruction itself. Diagnostic and therapeutic. Lovely. All right. So on to extrinsic causes. You got the same thing as like the adhesions, the hernias, whether those be external, internal, as we mentioned. Um, and then you can also get the neoplasms, um, hematomas, endometriosis, and then uh, the intraluminal causes. So things like foreign bodies. Also remember the foreign bodies that we've put in. So things like balloon tipped catheters. Don't forget that if those are distended and blocking off the small bowel, that can be a cause of the obstruction. Um, gallstones. So the classic kind of triad being regular triad. So you get a small bowel obstruction with the gallstone present within the lumen of the small bowel and then biliary gas. Um, yeah, the, the regular triad being a common, um, common uh, exam question uh, where they'll show you an x-ray with a small bowel obstruction. <laughs> I've seen it a few times now where I've been shown a small bowel obstruction. So when I see it now, the first thing I do at least with an exam question, if I'm shown an x-ray of a small bowel obstruction is I look at the liver and if I see that there's um, pneumobilia, then I go hunting hard for that gallstone. Lovely. Well, it's a lovely trip. Lovely hunt. Uh, and then the bazaars, as we mentioned before, too. All right. Yep. Often, often hair. Yum. Hair in... Is it? Yeah, I was looking at the thing called like trichobazores. Is that correct? Yeah, it's like a subset of, of bazaar. Yeah. Great. So don't just like trico trichotillom trichotillomania being the condition where you uh, oh yeah 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 so there's actually a link between psychiatry and radiology learning objectives diagnosis how do radiologists influence the decision tree for our clinical colleagues All right, guys, so that leads us on to our decision. So there has been a movement to treat small bowel obstructions more and more conservatively with uh, nasogastric decompression and bowel rest. Um, and as well as the gastrographin challenge. Oh, yes, of course. Oh, I can't forget that, of course. Um, and then the surgical, uh, like surgical treatment. So resections indicated in high-grade obstructions, bowel ischemia, or failure to improve with conservative management. Um, and both clinical and radiolo uh, radiologic presentations can actually predict the need for surgical intervention. So the clinical predictors would be the signs of intestinal ischemia, like terrible abdominal pain, so the acute abdomen picture, um, and like SIRS, peritonitis, metabolic acidosis, things like that. Um, in terms of CT indications for surgical management, the predictors of poor CT outcomes would be intraperitoneal free fluid, free intra-abdominal gas, duodenal distension, like a high-grade obstruction, the signs of intestinal ischemia, and closed-loop obstructions, and then surgical correctable causes of a small bowel obstruction, like a volvulus or incarcerated hernia, the closed-loop, as we mentioned, small bowel tumor, um, gallstone ileus, or foreign bodies that you can actually get out of the small bowel. You know, our, our surgical colleagues are, are so phenomenal at dealing with um, small bowel obstructions. I'm, I'm not a surgeon, but from the ones that I know, um, I think one of the real arts of surgery is deciding when you don't need to operate on a patient. And uh, I think in radiology, um, we, can, we can really help our surgical colleagues by, by telling them when there are um, risk factors, especially on CT, that might mean that uh, an earlier operation might benefit the patient sooner and then really trying to provide them with as much information as we can for this. Absolutely. I also think there was a 
it's a very helpful, or we are very helpful to our emergency colleagues who are making the diagnosis of these obstructions when they first present to the emergency department. Uh, I had one case that I was involved with during my off-service year, and I wasn't totally sold that she had had or had a small bowel obstruction. She kind of had this abdominal pain, but wasn't feeling that great. And I reviewed it with my staff and he comes in. He's like, I just, I have this feeling that it's a bowel obstruction. I just, I want to get that CT to corroborate. And sure enough, he was right. I tell you, they've got like this spidey sense of knowing what's going on with the patients. So um, yeah. just a, a way that we can work with our colleagues. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think one of the ways that we can help our emergency uh, colleagues as well is they're the ones who are often calling the surgeons and, and talking about the patient. And I think that if we can emphasize the high risk or the, the complicating features of a small bowel obstruction um, sooner, then the surgeons can often see the patients sooner and their, their management can be expedited in that sense. Yeah, don't you love how medicine is just such a team environment? I do. And lots of phone calls, that's for sure. Oh, totally. All right, guys, so that wraps it up for this week. Hopefully we shed some light on small bowel obstructions while you were learning in the dark. Please check out our website at learninginthedark.com for cases, show notes, and a link to our survey to provide us with feedback for future episodes. Until next time, stay happy and healthy. Adios, amigos.